2: radio I'm Tim Hayes I'm your host for the first hour and today is Friday February 9th 2024 as always we're grateful to everyone who's joining us here today whether you're listening live or through the archives as we spend another couple of hours teaching and supporting people in using some of the most powerful effective efficient and accessible tools I've ever encountered. These tools are available absolutely free through the tireless efforts of Dr. Michael and Jeannie Rice on the website at wyagain.org. If you go to that website and you click on the two words that say Start Here in the upper left-hand corner, it will take you to a page where you can download and read Chapter 24 of Dr. Michael Rice's book. His book is titled, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? And that chapter of the book contains a a narrative description and explanation of the primary tool in this work. That tool is called the Reality Management Worksheet sometimes called the Reality Management Wake-Up Sheet. And it's a tool I've been using to great effect for over 19 years now to improve the quality of my life and most of my relationships and to turn any negative emotional experience I have into part of the infallible guidance system that each and every one of us has been given. You can also download the actual worksheet process itself simple PDF file, click the link, download it, print it off, copy it as often as you'd like, and use it over and over again, absolutely free. You can also go to your app store and type in the three words, Heartland Aramaic Forgiveness. If you choose to do that, it'll let you download a completely free and private app, clicking on the uh, glowing heart icon, which you'll see before you're done typing the word forgiveness. We'll download a completely free and private app for you that contains the Reality Management Worksheet. It contains an abbreviated version of that worksheet process, and it contains a copy of the Dragon Klingon game, which is a wonderful way to introduce these tools to even younger audiences. We hope people do all of that soon and often, primarily because it tends to improve the quality of people's lives the more they actively apply these tools in their lives. And secondarily, because it tends to prompt comments, questions, answers, and testimonials. And if you have any of those to share with us, we would appreciate you doing so by giving us a call at 563-999-3581. When you call that number, if you press 1, it will put a little icon of a hand by your phone number, I can then turn on the microphone and announce you by your area code. And alternatively, you can send us an email. You can email me at tjh at mindshifters-academy.org. And or you can email Jeannie at j-e-a-n-i-e at yagain.org. That's W-H-Y-A-G-A-I-N. Dot .org And if we get a comment or a question from you from an email we'll address it on the internet show and then as time allows send you a notification about what day and time that occurred so that you can listen to the archives for your feedback or input and we greatly appreciate whenever anybody does that because it makes it far easier for us to live into our intention with this work the intention we have with this work is to be a service and there are no words for how much easier that is to do when we know how these things are landing for you so please let us know what can we do that is most beneficial for you what is it we've done in the past that's been highly beneficial that we can do more of and we will endeavor to do that. We had a support group last night. We've been offering support groups for 20 years now with uh, the Tuesday group. It'll be 20 years at the end of the summer and about 10 years for the uh, Thursday group. And we offer that absolutely free, and we hope you will... Consider taking advantage of it and or passing the information along to somebody else who might benefit most Tuesdays and Thursdays from 6.30 to 9 p.m. Central Time, and all the information you would need to join us is available there on the MindShiftersAcademy.org website. That's the most direct, easy way to find the stuff. It's also available on the WhyAgain.org website there's a a listing of some of the people who run support groups and a directory of that but for the MindShifters groups that I run the information is available on the MindShiftersAcademy.org website and um, last night we had two people plus me and we had worksheet processing and discussion and um I'll go out on a limb and say it was uh, productive and worthwhile for me and those involved. So we've been going through uh, the way of mastery and going through kind of as the mood takes me in, in this process of reading it with commentary, um, it's... It's interesting. I I don't know uh, how far we'll go into the second book, but we're we're now looking at the the 12th lesson, which is the last lesson in the first book. The first book is titled The Way of the Heart. The second book is called The Way of Transformation. And the third book is called The Way of Knowing. And as we were reading in the first 12 lessons, there's a segment where it talks to us about being very, very careful of the thoughts we're choosing. And it gives an analogy of a very special gardener who doesn't give any care for what the date on the calendar is or what the the weather' is doing, but that gardener is hand picking every individual seed that he or she will plant and working diligently to make sure that he or she likes the energy coming off of the seed. And then, and only when all of the seeds have been hand-selected, that gardener decides to go out and plant, even though all of the other farmers around have been planting and watering and doing what the farmer's almanac would tell them based on the weather, etc. And you might remember that from if you've been listening to our readings that this story of this very special gardener and how what happens is that gardener ends up with fruit that is better than anybody else's. It ends up with a crop that is world-renowned. I'm flipping through the book here, trying to come up with that particular message, so I can tell you what what lesson it's in. I thought it was in 8 or 9. It might be in 10, but... Now, it's in Lesson 9, and it starts with the the title of the section is Planting the Seed that Produces the Desired Result. And I'll just read the, the first paragraph of that. It says, Once indeed there was a farmer who went out to plant the seed in his ground. But before he went to plant the seed, he selected the seed very carefully. The other farmers rushed out because they thought, oh, look, it's time for the planting to begin. Everything is perfect. The conditions are just right. We must make haste and plant. And they went out and they bought whatever seeds they could find, and they spread them out across the ground and began their busy work of doing what they had to do. Rest assured, they would have their harvest. However, the wise farmer waited And while he was laughed at by his colleagues, he carefully selected every single seed. He waited until he could hold it in his hand and say, Oh, I like the vibration of this particular seed. This feels very good. Yes, I can just see the beautiful plant that is going to arise from this. The fruit of it will be the sweetest in the valley. So that's in the blue book, page 118, Lesson 9, under the heading, Planting the Seed that Produces the Desired Result. Well, just because of a number of factors in the past, I don't know, a couple of weeks, maybe months. month, in between these Internet shows, I do my own reading, my own studying, my own whatever you want to call it, worksheets, etc., talking to patients. And, And we've stumbled across things like Neville Goddard's work. And it reminded me of, as I was listening to Neville Goddard's, the first book that he wrote, it reminded me intensely of the book As a Man Thinketh by James Allen. So I got that book out and then I found out that for like $2.00 and some cents you can get an audible version of this very small book, it's not a big thing, by James Allen, As a Man Thinketh. And so I was looking, listening to that and reading that and here's what I found. Now, this book was published in the very early 1900s, like 1903 or 1905, something like that. Neville Goddard's work was coming out in 1920s or whatever. This is from Chapter 2 of the book, As a Man Thinketh, by James Allen. Chapter 2 is titled, Effective Thought on Circumstances. Effect? of Thought on Circumstances. And the text reads, A man's mind may be likened to a garden, which may be intelligently cultivated or allowed to run wild. But whether it is cultivated or neglected, it must and it will bring forth. If no useful seeds are put into it, then an abundance of useless weed seeds will fall therein and will continue to produce their kind. Just as a gardener cultivates his plot, keeping it free from weeds and growing the flowers and fruits which he requires, so may a man tend the garden of his or her mind, weeding out all the wrong, useless, and impure thoughts, and cultivating toward perfection the flowers and fruits of right useful and pure thoughts by pursuing this process a man or woman sooner or later discovers that she is the master gardener of her soul the director of her life she also reveals within herself the flaws of thought and understands with ever increasing accuracy how the thought forces and mind elements operate in the shaping of character circumstances and destiny so i felt compelled to share as you know now that i've read that that the wisdom of this work i don't i don't believe that james allen came up with this i think this is a part of what has been in human consciousness for thousands of years more than 2,000. I don't think Yeshua came up with it. Yeshua, in the writings and readings that I've done about this, where there is a person, Yeshua, he talks about being born into a family that's spiritually oriented and having masters teach him and traveling to different countries to study with other masters. And I have read parts of the Yoga, which is, I, know, I think, about 5,000 years old. And... The stuff that comes out of the Tao De Ching, which is, I don't know, 3,000 years old, says very much the same thing. There is a recognition of the power of consciousness, conscious awareness, and focused thought. And it's not just the way of mastery that's coming up with this. It's not just A Course in Miracles that's coming up with it. It's not the movie The Secret or The Law of Attraction that comes up with this. It's been in human consciousness for thousands of years. And at various times and at various levels, different cultures have either promoted this awareness of the power of cultivating our thought, of consciously focusing our awareness to produce a certain result, or different cultures like the one we're in now actively work to keep us focused on anything but internal work, introspection, spirituality, etc. And it happens, it just happens, Right, it, it, and it, it, there are some people who study it and come up with nice explanations after the fact david gruder who will you know be on the show back in the on the 23rd of of this month with um, laurie morse he has a, a set of observations about how after world war ii president truman was trying to keep the united states from becoming another germany and have another genocide and and was also trying to promote an economy that wasn't just about making war machines, because basically we came out of the Depression because of all of the industry that had to develop to help us through World War II, create all the tanks and all the planes and all the bombs and all the bullets and all the rifles and all this and the other thing. So they they said, hey, let's find some really bright economists and help them, have them help us create an economy that's based on something other than just war. And they came up with an idea. Let's promote the American dream. Let's tell people that they need to have a little house in the suburbs with a white picket fence and a car and two kids and a chicken in every pot and a TV and all of this other stuff that started to develop. And it's, he says, David Gruder says, it's not coincidence that that economist that developed that model advised presidents all the way into the 1990s or at least into the 1980s. And he says... Basically what they ended up with was a corruption of what the founding fathers thought of when they said we have the right to the pursuit of happiness. Because now we have someone outside of us deciding and telling us what happiness is and what we have to accumulate in order to have it. And that is not what they were talking about when the founding fathers created the phrase pursuit of happiness. So is it a big plot? Are there people like the Illuminati trying to control us and kill us? Probably not. I I don't see a lot of evidence for that. And yet we can look at these patterns and different cultures that develop and see how they either help us do our personal introspective work and, and prep us for that and give us guidance about it, or they go in an opposite direction and they actively work to provide us stimulation and distraction and or devalue internal personal work. But back in the 1700s and the 1800s and the 1900s, people knew this stuff. Back in the 1000s, there were people. Back in the the time there's the um the book Stealing Fire that talks about how there was a general back I, I believe it was in Roman times, but anyway, he stole from the priests the elixir that gave enlightenment. So this was this you might think of it as L S D. Some, some kind of a hallucinogenic substance that they used in their enlightened spiritual practices. And he stole it and gave it out at a party for all of these fellow generals. And and it was like, you know, this was state-level blasphemy. This was he, he had to go on the run the rest of his life for this. But it opened people's minds to the idea that, wait a minute, your brain, your mind can do more than just chase after some food and chase after some money and fight off bad guys. And that entire book, Stealing Fire, is about what has now become brain biohacking. It's about finding ways to encourage your mind and your brain and your the energies of your brain to light up and expand, and go into heightened states of awareness. That stuff has been known for thousands of years. And certain cultures either promote it or, intentionally or not, provide extensive distractions from it. so if you want to dip your toe into the kind of thing that was known in the late 18, early 1900s and, and the same kind of message from this book As a Man Thinketh, Thinketh it, by James Allen is in Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill because great minds and leaders back in the 18 and early 1900s knew this stuff they would read books like this. They would read philosophers. And Napoleon Hill's book, Think and Grow Rich, is simply this conglomeration of the interviews he did with some of the most successful business people of that era. And as I mentioned, it's um, it's a rather short book. Think As a Man Thinketh by James Allen. But I just felt compelled to share how similar this is to the story that, and the way of mastery was channeled from 1994 to 97 or something like that. So here's the thing, you know, 90 years earlier in James Allen's book, it's the same analogy of what we choose as thought, what we allow to run wild in our mind or we consciously choose and nurture produces more of it. And just like the way of mastery is calling us to, here's the invitation to just get really clear about what you're valuing, really clear about what you're choosing to focus mind energy on for extensive periods of time. I think where we left off yesterday was at the point in the book where it talks about we had had just been going back and talking about making sure that you really get the pearls of grace that have been offered and that you give yourself some opportunity to at least begin experimenting with some of the exercises. And when I finished reading yesterday, he said, in the way of transformation, it does not require striving. This is right from the first chapter. It requires allowing. It doesn't require thinking with your conscious logical mind. It requires letting go into feeling and trusting. Not so much doing, but trusting. And the text goes on there and says, these roots of fear must be dissolved at a level that is deeper than the conscious thinking mind can reach. The mind was never designed to be your master, but to become aligned as a servant of the awakened heart. Just as the flower blossoms and sends forth its scent for all to see from the depth of the soil that is unseen, but that soil has been well prepared. So that The only roots that gather nourishment from that soil are the roots of that which speaks of capital L life and beauty and not that which speaks of fear and unworthiness. Seek you then to seek no more. Find. Be one who has found. For the place is prepared for you and you need only go to it. That place is inside you. Therefore, we will be cultivating more deeply the art of surrendering and resting ever more deeply into that place of silence, which is the threshold to perfect wisdom divine. The way of the heart is the preparation of the soil that allows the way of transformation to occur. Transformation is not complete unless it envelops, encompasses, and is expressed through the very life you know. Right there on your speck of dust, whirling about the sun in a small part of the universe. Expressed on your earth in your time frame, through your relationships, through your experience, and in your life as you know it, as you live it as you breathe it and as you feel it. So let the breath flow and realize that you have the freedom to go back over the previous lessons and see if there's anything there that you missed. And as you do that, do that from a place of Christedness. Here's a suggested perspective or lens through which you go back through these lessons. Quote, I am the one who is choosing to enter the way of transformation, whereby human consciousness, the human lived experience, becomes the living expression, the fruit which has sprung forth from the soil in which the roots of grace and love and healing have been well planted. Close quotes. Do not do this from the perspective that you're doing something amiss or wrong. Do it out of the desire to be the perpetually avid student gardener. The gardener who brings forth that fruit which extends the good, the holy, and the beautiful and the scent of joy for all to receive, for all to see, and for all to marvel. Yet that beauty springs forth From the gardener's beautiful garden, it does not build up the ego of that student gardener. For the perpetually avid student gardener knows that he or she has only been the keeper of the soil. The magic that brings forth the flower is not his or her possession. It's merely that which they're able to channel. They've been given stewardship over that consciousness. Consciousness is the gift of life. It is streaming forth from the mind of the creator. Your mind, then, is simply the soil of the garden. All awakening and all transformation occur nowhere except in that garden, in your consciousness. Some of you are still seeking to understand the mind by seeing it as something that is locked inside the shape of your skull and is somehow cohabitating with what you call the gray matter of the brain. Please rest assured that your mind is unlimited forever. The body that sits in the chair in your five-minute exercise is just as a drop of foam being expressed at the slightest tip of one wave in an infinite ocean. That ocean is itself within the unlimited expanse of your mind. You are consciousness, and as such, you are pure, capital S The only question then is this, are you willing to allow that drop of foam to be transformed into that which fully and always expresses only the capital L love of creation? Even though that expression is still temporary because the body has arisen in the field of time and it disappears in the field of time, are you willing to say, what the heck, and just allow that love to be fully embodied, as fully embodied as is humanly possible for it to be in the split second that that body exists in this world. Expressing mastery is the effect of the way of transformation in this world, in this time, in this tiny little moment. Rest assured that to the degree that you turn your attention to expressing mastery to the degree that you use time wisely to be the embodied Christ. When the body drops away and it veils from you no longer the magnificence of the capital L light that you are, the light will not be blinding to you and you will not contract in fear. You will merely let this world go gently and as easily as a child puts away a toy that has been outgrown. All that you are, the body, your relationships, your devices and your stars, your winds and your waters, all of this will eventually be put aside by you, not out of denial, but simply out of recognizing that their usefulness for you is over. Indeed, beloved friends, as we come to the completion of the first 12 books, look well to see that no drops of grace have been ignored. Open the heart ever more deeply. Allow those pearls, those drops of grace, to penetrate ever more deeply, not just as ideas in the thinking mind, but as feelings in the cells of the body. Let it create for you a sweetness in the flow of the breath a sensitivity in the way of your foot resting upon the soil of the earth with each step. Let it begin to transform the way in which you rest your hand upon the shoulder of your brother or sister. Allow that sweetness to permeate your gaze as you look upon another, seeing them as the Christ within them that is growing into a beautiful flower whose scent and beauty will be as a blessing to many. There is not one among you who is not the evolving Christ. Remember always that what you see is what you get, in the same way as what you teach, you learn. The next section is titled, A Meditation of Release. And the text asks us to look well then and ask yourself this, quote, who do I know in my existence who I have judged and locked into a certain box and I have decided that that is all that they are, close quotes. This is a big one. Who do I know from all of my life experience that I've judged and therefore locked them into a box and decided this is all they are? they're just a jerk, they're just stupid, they're just X, Y, or Z less than me. The text then says, there is where you will find a fruitful meditation for reflection. I would suggest that you use the next 30 days to take time and use it wisely to allow the names the images, and the faces of those that you have judged. Allow them to come up, come back into your awareness, and then you say, quote, you know, mother, father, ex-mate, whatever it is, whoever it is, I get it. I have placed you in a box and thrown away the key. You're stuck, so I have said, and now I release you. I release you so that I might be released. And then contemplate their image. Allow the memories of the experiences you have shared with them to come back. If there are feelings, by all means, let yourself feel them. Gaze upon them in your mind until you feel that sweetness that dissolves the imprisonment into which you have placed them. For as that imprisonment begins to melt, you will sense and know that your freedom is blossoming. You cannot take fear into love. You cannot take judgment into forgiveness. You cannot take limitation into limited, unlimitedness. These things must be released at the level in which they were first created. Therefore, make note that this practice should not be overlooked. Give yourself 30 days with the goal to truly go back And shall we say, mop up any forgiveness or releasing that you need to do. Do not let your mind say, quote, well, I don't know if I did that well enough, close quotes. Understand this. It is the comforter that releases you and the other through your willingness to allow it to occur. Now there are some effects. This will mean that when you have truly done that, never again do you have any justification or excuse for attaching any experience you've ever had or any feelings you've ever felt to the hook on the outside of their imprisonment that you have placed them in. Often the human mind, the egoic mind, wants to hang out excuse me, wants to hang the coat of its judgment on the hook just outside the bars in which you've locked somebody else. For instance, quote, that which I have experienced is the result of my father's alcoholism. That which I've experienced in life is the result of my mother having had 40,000 affairs a week. That which I've experienced is the result of my business partner who's stolen my golden coins that which has caused my suffering is the result of the position of the stars in the sky when I chose incarnation. If only they would have gotten it right, then I would be fine, close quotes. As we conclude the way of the heart, I say unto you, do not enter the way of transformation until you have truly and fully satisfied your awareness that you are not clinging to even the subtlest iota of perception that in any way you are a victim of the world you see nothing has been caused by your relationships all of them have merely shown you what you have already decided will be true The world, then, is not the cause of anything. You merely see what you have used the freedom of your consciousness to concoct about yourself. For example, loss and lack is not caused by taxation. Taxation is caused by the decision to need to believe that there is a a power outside of yourself that needs all your energy. Government does not cause you to be subservient. Your sense of being subservient, guilt-ridden, weak, and limited is what births the idea of government. Then some of you, as loving brothers and sisters, say, oh, well, I'll play that part. I'll be a politician. And they become your politicians that create the disgruntled feelings that you have. The world is uncaused by anything except the choices you have made as a free consciousness. You have concocted the thought and then immersed yourself in that, which reflects back to you what you have already decided to believe. Again, this is exactly the point of the book As a Man Thinketh by James Allen that we were mentioning earlier. And he spends his entire little book talking about this from a variety of different angles. The world is uncaused by anything except the choices you have made as a free consciousness. You have concocted the thought and then immersed yourself in that which reflects back to you what you've already decided to believe. This means that the way of transformation is that way in which one becomes empowered in every moment to become fully responsible for clearly deciding what they will see and what they will not settle for. The better you get at this, the quicker it happens until one reaches the point where miracles occur. Yet, they are only miraculous to those that do not understand how consciousness works. You can achieve that place in which you hold out the palm of your hand and desire the sweetest-tasting apple that has ever been created, and it will literally appear in the palm of your hand. Of course, at that point, you will be well beyond any need whatsoever, even to hold the thought of requiring physical form. You will begin to get a sense of your mastery by being able to look at the world you see and observe clearly what has been changing in it. You will observe how quickly and effortlessly that which the heart truly desires, because it is in alignment with the one mind of the Creator, becomes manifested effortlessly. When the gap between the pure desire and the manifested reflection of it is smaller and smaller and smaller, you will literally sense in the feeling body that mastery is growing. You will know that you are merely a child of the Creator playing without ceasing in the sandbox of all possibilities called capital M MIND and that there is literally nothing out there that is solid, nothing out there that is unrelated to you. So that is where we are going if you wish to come along on the journey, if you're willing to truly become committed to uprooting every root of fear that has taken hold within the depth of the mind and that has been rendered unconscious because of your hatred of yourself. It is called the separation from God. And therefore, because it has become unconscious, it has ruled you. This is time to release the unrulable by allowing that alone, which can uproot the root of fear, to come and take up its rightful place within you. What is that? christ-mindedness you have your homework before you then go within and ask quote have i taken the time to fully focus on each lesson close quotes and then you might realize well you know when i read that third lesson i was trying to watch the football game on television i wonder if i might have missed something Wait a minute, when I read the seventh lesson, I was thinking about going out to dinner. So I don't think I really sat with it and extracted the pearls that were offered. Perhaps I will go back and really set aside some quiet time in which I deliberately put the world aside and hang on every word offered. And yet... Please, if you choose to do so, do this with your body in a relaxed state, with a soft breath, with an open, allowing mind. Watch for the grasping. Watch for the tension and just release it. Be you, therefore, like a sponge that allows the raindrops to be absorbed into the self. And that is all. Knowledge is not a cognitive struggle. It is not the arranging of ideas in some order that satisfies the thinking mind. Knowledge is the receiving of a vibration that begins to soften the soil of the heart and to dissolve the root of fear from your being. Knowledge is the result of the transformation of the garden that you have been given and entrusted with, the field of mind that is you. That mind pervades the body. It pervades the space around you and melds and dances with other infinite webs of relationship called other minds, other dancing, energy, dancing into energy, unlimited, forever. And out of this, all things of time are birthed and pass away. So you see, where I abide is everywhere at once. And so do you. You simply do not know it yet. I abide with an infinite array of friends who have fully realized the capital T truth and have been set free. They are infinitely creating without ceasing that which extends their treasure. Their treasure is the good, the holy, and the beautiful. Many have given you images of choirs of angels singing the praises of God. It's the same thing. For when extension of joy becomes free to express only the good, the holy, and the beautiful, it is like a vibration of many notes, a choir of creative consciousness, sparks of divinity who abide in perfect unlimitedness and know it. And they ceaselessly extend their deepest bliss by allowing the good, the holy, and the beautiful to flow through them from the infinite, mysterious, ungraspable, uncontainable capital M mind that is the creator. Just as the sunlight of the sun creates and streams through many sunbeams that extends out to the far reaches of your universe as light and out of which planets are birthed and animals and water, and trees, and birds, and man are created. Imagine them. That is your destiny, to take up your rightful place beside me, Yeshua ben Joseph, to join your brothers and sisters in infinite and perfect creativity, like a harp player who ceaselessly runs the fingers across the strings, creating the most beautiful notes. The combinations never cease. In every moment, you experience the fruit of the flowers springing forth from the garden that you have well prepared to receive the reign of grace. The good, the holy, and the beautiful flow through your unobstructed mind that rests in perfect marriage or union with that which is your creator your source evermore 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 this is not a bad way to spend eternity but if you look ahead and you feel that there is a distance between where you are and where that reality is you will miss the opportunities required right where you are to produce where you are going By being it now, you have heard it said that a journey of a thousand miles begins with the first step, and the beginning is every bit as important as the end, for in the beginning the end is already present. The way of transformation asks you to truly become present where you are right now, to deliberately and consciously cultivate with every thought and every breath, cultivate the willingness necessary that allows the root of fear to be dissolved so that the good, the holy, and the beautiful are all that emanates from you, like a beacon being sent out to creation around you. Do not delay, do not waste time. Time can indeed be wasted, but listen well, for time can also waste. You have a saying we would perceive in many of your silly movies where someone gets, quote, wasted, close quotes. How many times have you been the one who has said to yourself, well, I think I'll just waste myself. How many ways have you gone unconscious? How many ways have you numbed your feelings? How many ways have you judged your brother or sister? How many ways have you decided to hold on to thoughts such as, quote, I could never do that. What's the point? It's a waste, close quotes. Oh, yes. You just put a gun to your head and pulled the trigger. You have wasted yourself by wasting time. Every moment is a doorway through which the good, the holy, and the beautiful can be expressed. They can be expressed as the cultivation of the consciousness through which the power to do so grows. Oh, beloved friends... Those moments of your time are very precious. Do not look out upon the world thinking that it is just the same old world. Remember then, as you begin to come to the completion of the study of the way of the heart, that what you see outside of you is only the reflection of what you have allowed to live within you. Once you have that realization, then simply ask, Quote, is this what I wish to continue? What do I truly want? What is this my very consciousness for? What do I commit myself to? What do I say I believe? Where do I freely choose to place the power of valuation? Close quote. For what you truly value, you experience immediately. The world will bow down and say, Very well, you've let us know that what you value, and we'll mirror it back to you because we love you, because we are part of you, and heaven forbid, we would not want to take away your free will. So, if you see A world of hopelessness it means you're valuing hopelessness and the world will look like a hopeless place if you value lack of golden coins you will continue to see lack of golden coins which just means the lack of a flow of energy if you value loneliness you will continue to be alone if you value the right to be in judgment of another you will experience the fruit of separation If you value sweetness, sweetness will come. If you value receiving love, please listen to this carefully. If you value receiving love, the world will begin to show up at your doorstep in completely different embodiments. Different vibrations, different thought patterns will be mirrored back to you that let you receive love. For nothing can be received until the place is repaired, prepared for it to enter. And you can only give what you've been willing to receive. If you receive a drop of water into your glass, that is all you can give to another. But he that receives all gives all, and he that gives all receives tenfold more. So, beginning with the incredible parallels between James Allen's book, As a Man Thinketh, written in the very early 1900s, and picking up in Lesson 9, I think it is, page 118 of the Big Blue Book of Way of Mastery, the same Gardner analogy, allegory, and then moving on to reading even more of Lesson 12. I hope this is landing well for you. I hope you have some resonance with the idea of really considering a review of at least the critical lessons in the first 12 lessons before moving forward into the way of transformation. Thank you all for being here and listening. I hope you have a wonderful weekend. I'll remind you that the call-in number is 563 And I will remind us all that we come from love, we're made of the stuff called love, we actually are love and everything else is false. Welcome Jeannie Rice.
1: Thank you, Dr. Tim. I appreciate it. I hope you have a good weekend.
2: Thanks. Same to you.
1: Blessings. Thanks. So welcome everybody to the second hour of Mindshifters Radio. And today is Friday, February the 9th, 2024. And their call-in number is 563-999-3581, and press 1, and that puts you in queue to talk to us. And we would love to hear your comments and questions, because that makes this your show. And we'll give Michael a moment to dial in and uh, um, turning on Podbean as we speak. Okay, so... Welcome to Mindshifters Radio, and we are on day 20 of the Enlightenment series that we're talking about, uh, which is what's printed out of the Caboris manuscript so far. And we had a question come in through email, so when Michael gets on, I think he's going to address that question first. And if you have any comments, please press 1, it puts a hand up, and we know that you want to talk. So... We'll give him just a minute, and I'm going to reconnect to the chat room. For some reason, um, it won't let two of us in there at the same time. so <laughs> I couldn't get in until Dr. Tim had hung up, so Michael is with us now. So I'm going to say welcome, Michael.
3: Awesome, dear heart. Thank you. And welcome, everybody. Delighted that you're here. And that together we get to keep moving along in this understanding of how to shift into a, we can't really call it a mindset, how to approach creating a mindset that allows us to shift into the space where we continuously live connected to our original being, which is love. That would perhaps be a more... Appropriate way to uh, to speak it, and Miss Jeannie, you've got a question from someone. If you'd like to present that question, we'll get into. Uh, just I wasn't sure exactly how the uh, the question was phrased, so.
1: Okay, I need to reopen my email to get it because after I read it to you and sent that to you this morning, I shut down that other email. But hold on, and I will have it right here. So. Um, cool. They have been I know it was on to... uh, Matthew 12.8. Right. Um, recently, I came across the Mindshifters podcast and have been enjoying it since I've never heard anything like Michael is teaching. I am unable to call in due to my work hours. I'd like to ask a question, however, what is your take on the meaning of Matthew 12.8, where it says, quote, For the Son of Man is Lord at Sabbath. And of course, the Son of Man, they're talking about Yeshua or Jesus.
3: Okay. Good question. Well, if we, uh, I want to get, just get clear on what the, the total context of the question. I've got your text, but I wasn't sure if that was the whole question. So, so if we read that passage, and it, it is a, uh, there's a statement there that has aroused tremendous controversy, in the Greek. Transl—pardon me—the Greek interpretations of the scriptures. We really can't call them translations. You know, if um, if one has an idiom, translate an idiom. You've got to know what the idiom means. You know, it's not an idiom is not translatable. So whenever we're looking at a Greek um, rendition of an idiom, we're looking at an interpretation or a projection, we are not looking at translation. And you've heard me use the example before, but short and sweet, imagine that a man from Russia shows up, wants to attend one of our workshops for a week, and I know that you speak Russian, and you've got an extra room in your home, and I ask if you'll house him and translate for him, and you're delighted to do that. And at the end of the week, after we've all had a great time together, I, not speaking any Russian, want you to communicate how I feel about this man and how wonderful you know the experience was so i ask you if you tell this gentleman from russia that i think he's really cool and you turn to him in your best russian and you and i'll put this word in quote translate for me michael thinks you've got a low body temperature well you translated my words perfectly but you didn't say a word about what i meant so that's not a translation that's substitution of one idea for a totally different idea. And so this is an area of tremendous controversy, one of the statements in this particular passage. So I'm going to start out and read uh, that, that section in, the, uh, in Matthew. So at that time, Yeshua was walking on the Sabbath in the grain fields, and his disciples were hungry, and began plucking the ears of grain, and they were eating But when the Pharisees saw them, they were saying to him, Behold, your disciples are doing something that is illegal to do on the Sabbath. But Yeshua said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the temple, the house of God, and ate the bread of the table of the Lord Jehovah, and that which was not legal for him to eat, neither for those who were with him, but rather for the priests only. So he's kind of throwing it back in their faces. Or have you not read the written law that the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? In other words, that the priests are working, quote-unquote, and therefore they're, according to the Pharisees, profaning the Sabbath. But I say unto you, one greater than the temple is here. But if you had known what this is, so now he's going to quote the Creator If you had known what this is, I want mercy and not sacrifice. You would not have condemned those who are blameless. For the Son of Man is Master of the Sabbath. So in the Greek translations, that word Master in that last sentence, which is the core of what you asked about, is not Lord of, but Master. And When you have theologies that are based on sacrifice and misinterpretation, misunderstanding, you you look at the whole thing of most of the Greek teachings are about the sacrifice that was made. And here's Yeshua saying, I don't want sacrifice. I want mercy. I want understanding. I want you to stand, as we've been speaking about, as a space of active love, rachma active in your minds. And so if we look at this, uh, the core of this question or this issue, and it's not one that's addressed in the Enlightenment book. That's not something that's been translated and and presented there. But uh, if you go to the Aramaic, the the rendering of the word son of man in in Aramaic, bar danesha, and I'm not proclaiming that my pronunciation is good, um, Is the are, are the words that are used in Aramaic. There's also Bray-Dinasha. So Bar-Dinasha is rendered as the son of man. Bray-Dinasha is child of a human being. So properly translated, all that Yeshua is saying is, I'm a human being. And it's a term in Aramaic that is meant to denote humility. So what he's saying is that we humans the sabbath was made and there's another another place in Mark 227. He says it much more crisply and much more clearly. He says the Sabbath was created for the sake of man and not man for the sake of the Sabbath. In other words, all your legalism in beating people up because you haven't resolved your own hostility and fear and you've got to fulfill your need to beat people up is crazy in the context of the teaching that I'm presenting to you. So in Mark 2.27, it's really clear. The Sabbath was created. In other words... You know, a, a day of rest was proclaimed so that humans could live as fully human beings. And so when he says the Son of Man is and in an Aramaic, again, the word is not Lord of, which adds more confusion to it, but rather is Master. In other words, the, the rest was made to support humans. Humans weren't made to support your uh, hostility-based your judgment-based interpretations of what you call the law and the misunderstanding of law. You know, when people are living in perception, law becomes the rule of a superior. In Aramaic, it's no, it's how things work. And so in essence, he's saying, you know, the Sabbath was given to humans, In order for humans to be fully human, to have the space and the time and the ability to rest from the work they were in, had to do to live, they were given this gift. And so it is that picking a few grains because one is hungry is something that humans have a right to do. And so that would be my thought on, my thoughts on, on that from the Aramaic. Jeannie, I know you did some research. Do you have any thoughts on it, on that passage?
1: Um, the only thing is that during, if you read the whole chapter, which, you know, a lot of people do just try to pick a verse here or there, and you've got to put it in the context of everything that's being written right there at the same right. place. And they also, besides saying, you know, um, you're picking grain on the Sabbath. Then they went on to say, you know, are you going to heal someone on the Sabbath as well? And he actually did. The next step was he healed a man's withered hand in front of the synagogue. And they about flipped their legs. Oh, boy, you're in trouble now. (laughs) And he asked them, he said, if you had a sheep and it fell in the ditch, would you not pull it out? Is a human not more important than your sheep? And uh so you know it was, they were just out to get him and they were looking for any little thing to to nitpick at.
0: Right.
3: So Yeshua has and I think this this particular statement the uh the son of man is human that's what that term means and again there's all kinds of controversy about the son of man proclaiming and and proclaiming yeshua to be something other than human and here he's saying we're humans and and it's a statement of humility it's not a statement of you know i'm i'm the boss and everybody better listen to me and as everything that he presents he presents it for humans to become fully human. You know, if you look at his, uh, his statement about why he's here, he doesn't say, well, I'm here to bring you some new dogma or some new doctrine. He says, I'm here to bring life and bring it more abundantly. I'm here to clear out the hostility and fear-based perceptions that you live in so that you might actually realize the expression of your human life fully through your physiology into the world. You know, there's a, if you go back to the creation story, and, and I've heard people say, oh, Moses was just getting senile and didn't realize that he was telling the creation story, the, the story of creation man, twice. But if you read them, they're distinctly different, and they're not the same story. And and he's not telling it twice. He's talking about two stages of the creation of our expression here in the world. The first stage, you'll notice, he talks about, and the Creator created them, male and female, he created them. Period. There's no mention of a body. There's no mention of Adam. There's no mention of earth or dirt or dust or anything else. Humans. Human life. Love is created brought into expression and then once the creation's complete then Moses starts again and says there was no man to till the soil and he was right the human being was had been created and there was no physical component there was not a physiological expression so then the second part it talks about the incarnation so it says, there was no man to till the soil. And then it goes about talking about Adamos, which means red clay, the forming of physiology. And then the final statement is the marriage. Between Adamos and Nafsha, the word that, that in Aramaic represents the being that was created, male and female, was nafsha. And so what it then says is Nafsha was breathed into Adamos, the red clay, and man became a living or an incarnated being. Now, if you think about that introduction, you know, they talk about seven days of creation as though it must have been seven 24-hour days, which is just silly in the context of reading the whole body of this story you know there's another part of the scriptures where they talk about to the creator a day is like a thousand years a thousand years is like a day and there's a big argument that oh it must have been seven 24 hour days and that's just silliness a a, a period in, in, in the Aramaic language each of the days of creation refers to a period and a period might have been 20 million years, might have been 100 million years, it wasn't about 24 hours as we want to proclaim a day and yes I have seen some preachers who've gone some pretty extreme dream lengths to try and convince us it meant 24 hours, but it didn't so the, the expression of man comes into a body-mind unit that has been through, Adamos has been through quite a bit before this introduction, the marriage of the two takes place. The, the breath of life is put into Adamos. Nafsha is inserted into a body. And of course, the body mind unit, in order to get this far, you know, if you look at the whole creation story, you take a look at uh, the fetus. And if you study the fetus carefully, it goes through every stage of what would be called evolution. And evolution, there is no conflict whatsoever between evolution and creation. They are one and the same. Except somebody says it had to be 24 hours, so it had to be some magic thing. The other one is time periods and seven periods, seven stages of expression. So... You know, when you look at the dog-eat-dog world, this human form, Adamos, which is going to be the vehicle of expression for us as human beings, has been through quite a bit and has learned through the, the hard, tough road of survival that it is, as Darwin would have talked about, survival of the fittest. And you had to be pretty tough and you had to know about survival. And then this gentle sweet creature called Nafsha, being, created essence of a human being, is given the opportunity to come into expression in the world, but of course it's going to have to express through what's in the world. Adamos. And you could almost imagine the first meeting of Nafsha and Adamos. So, here's the human form, the breath of life that is, nafsha is breathed into this physiological device or expression called Adamos. And Adamos has, you know, been through quite a bit. You Knows all about survival. And Adamos works strictly by whatever it has learned from the past. You remember, we talked about perception and this construct of the mind it, 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 that, Adamos would substitute for our experience directly of the creation is called perception it's based on what's stored in this carbon-based memory system this Adam Adamos red clay system and there's lots of survival stuff in there so imagine the first conversation Nafshi is breathed into Adamos and and now she says hi I'm your new landlord And uh, I understand that you work uh, according to survival and you know what survival is all about. Uh, But guess what? I now am going to take over the show. I have been put here and I have something you don't have. I have choice. And so I'm now going to run this expression that we call this body-mind unit. And you can imagine, you know, Adamos having to come through quite a bit in terms of survival, maybe been close to being eaten several times, says, well, you know, I'm not sure you're qualified. What do you mean? I'm, I've got choice. The creator created me to run the show. And Adam Adamo says, well, um, what do you know about survival? And Nafsha an says, well, what are you talking about survival? What, what's that? So Adamus explains, well, you know, this is kind of a dog-eat-dog world. You know, there are tigers there just over that hill. Um, you know, we could get eaten. And is just like, well, what do you mean eaten? And Adamus explains, well, you know, you may be food for somebody, but this whole thing could be over. And, you know, Nau's just kind of scratching his head saying, hmm, not so sure about this now. Uh, tell me more. So, well, let me give you an example. This is Adamus speaking. Now, you see those two berry bushes over there? You see how they're slightly different colors? One of those berries, if we eat them, and not just eat, what's that? And he, you know, Adamus has to explain, you know, nourishment and food. Oh, okay. So which berries are you going to, ch- You, you, big shot, have got choice. You're going to choose what we're going to eat. Which berries are you going to eat? Because you know what? If you eat the berries from one of those bushes, they'll, feed us. If you eat the berries from the other bush, it'll kill us. You got choice, which one you're going to choose. And the officer's like, well, I didn't know anything about this eating and death thing, and I don't know which to choose, but certainly we want to survive. I got that message from you, so tell you what, why don't you choose? And Adama says, well, I don't have any choice. I, I just go by my gut reaction. I go by the constructs in my mind that are reflections of the past. And and I'm pretty good at survival. So, yeah, maybe you want to listen to me. Says, okay. So whenever it comes to eating berries, you get to. Okay. And and you know that uh, tiger that I talked about? If we're upwind of him and nauseous, whoa, 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 what do you mean, upwind? So, you know... Uh, Adamos explains, well, you know, there are certain odors to the body, and these prey animals know how to tap into those things, follow a scent, and uh, we get eaten. And Nops just kind of like, whoa, I didn't know that. Um, so, uh, do we want to be upwind or downwind? Well, this wise guy, I thought you had choice. You should be able to tell me what we should do. And uh, Nops is like, well, I, I, I don't, I don't know which. I don't know. Okay, tell you what. So now you can imagine they come to a negotiated settlement Mm -hmm. wherever there's survival involved. Adomalus, you take over with your pre-programmed survival messages and you run the show. But when it's not survival, then I come in with choice. Okay, so imagine it's settled. Now, take that whole scenario and apply it to your life. Think about situations where things are rocking along, things are going well, and, you know, you're making choices and everything's doing well. And one day you run into somebody who does not agree with the goals you have for them and does not fulfill the goals you have for them. Now, you've got choice. You could walk away. But imagine that them not fulfilling the goals in you, arouses some upset and disturbance. But but you say, oh, I've been doing Michael Rice's work and the forgiveness work, so so I'm going to stay active and functioning as conscious, present love. That's what I'm committed to doing. and And you do that, right? Until something happens. What happens? Well, in order to determine whether a situation was survival or not, We needed to have some kind of a measuring device, so let's imagine we invented the emotional meter. The emotional meter goes from 1 to 10, and we shift out of choice into survival, into pre-program mode along about a 7, and that's how you determine that an issue is survival. So you're interacting with someone and you're a choice and, and you want this from them and they say no and your emotional meter goes up a little bit, maybe get a little frustrated. You go from a one to a three and and uh, this person is resisting your commands, your choices and simply refuses to do what it is you want them to do and now all of a sudden the emotional meter gets kind of hopping you get a little hotter and you want this done and you better do it or else but I'm a human being and I am love and I'm going to keep functioning as love and I'm going to keep my, my voice tones and my being in harmony with the truth of who I am as love until the emotional leader hits seven and you'll lose it. <laughs> the honeymoon is over. That's what they say in relationship work. What does that mean? That means that the emotional leader of one or both people in the relationship has hit a seven Choice is gone and both people are now at gut level instinct survival. And hostility and fear runs the game. Now perception is darkened. Let's go back to that passage we've been spending so much time on. The light of your earthly life is perception. That is the guide for your earthly life are the constructs of your mind. Therefore, if your perception is without fault, what does that mean? That means that your mind is fueled by love and choice. So if love is the fuel for your physiology, for your mind, for your emotions, then your perception is without fault and your whole life will be enlightened. In other words, love will flow into every corner of your physiology at every interaction in the world. But if your perception be unfit, i.e., if the emotion meter just hit seven, hostility or fear is kicked in full blast, then your whole life shall be darkened by it. Remember how you had that kind of interaction with somebody, the emotion meter hit seven and you were ready to blast them and maybe you did and then you turned around and maybe you kicked the cat and you beat up on the kid? who had done nothing. But now one's whole life is darkened by perception that is unfit. And then the last sentence in that passage from the Aramaic says, and if the light or the guide for you is darkness, how deep will your darkness become? So what we're looking to do is to tap being the created essence, Nafsha on the shoulder and say, you have choice and you are designed to incarnate in this form. But there's some work to be done. You're going to have to clean up some of the darkness that's already here. You have generational patterns. It's time to clean those generational patterns up. I was talking with someone this morning in a private session and I shared... Many of you knew Angie Nerber, who was a little Italian lady who lived in South Florida when I first moved down there. And I was looking for a place. I was doing more and more work in Fort Lauderdale. So I was looking for a place to live in Fort Lauderdale. And she had a room for rent, so I rented a room from her. She was this little Italian lady. She was about five foot one, uh, feisty as hell. And uh, she had had polio as a kid, so she walked with a Canadian crutch. And she got involved in this work, just really tapped into the work, spent a lot of time with it, um, did every class, actually handled recording classes. Uh, Actually, it's Angie's um, gift that we have the uh, recordings of many of the original Course in Miracles classes because she brought her little tape recorder and she'd record them. And uh, one of the pieces of the puzzle that Angie dealt with as a kid, you know she had had polio as a very young child, so she was about this issue that she went back at one point. I can remember as clearly Isabel sitting at her kitchen table and processing this with her. She was about seven, and she was Italian, and members of the mafia I never did. She never did share what it was they wanted her father to do, but they wanted her father to do something, and he wouldn't do it, and so they came after her and threatened to kill her. That was like a major piece of work for her to deal with and to, to move through. When we're talking about Adamo's holds traumas from generation upon generation upon generation... And what we're saying is that the work of correcting the root of faulty perception is urgent to do. Otherwise, one lives their whole life in survival. And when we're in survival, we're in a thing called sympathetic dominance. Sympathetic dominance means that blood flow is shunted away from the higher centers of the brain and the place where choice expresses, where we get to process choice, the instrument of the expression of choice in the frontal lobes of the brain. They're drained of of blood. The digestive system, the eliminative system, the healing systems of the body are drained, literally physically drained of blood when we go into sympathetic dominance and all of that blood is shunted into the large muscles of the arms and the leg legs to prepare us to run or fight and to the lungs to allow enough oxygen in for that fight-flight response to bring us to survival. And if one lives in that, you know, it's, it's a really wonderful system that was designed to keep us alive and you know, in the jungle. But if you go into the office and you're still living out of jungle survival dynamics, i.e., you know, you were a kid, as Angie was, who was terrorized by mafia because her father wouldn't do what they wanted them to do, then 70 years later... Some sort of stimulus comes along that resonates, and and i don 't I remember really clearly sitting at the table and processing this with Angie, although i don 't remember exactly what it was that had triggered that in her at that moment, but it was some seventy years later, six maybe sixty five years later, but she had to go back and process that to get free of that survival response that was put into her at the age of seven. How many people do you suppose, I mean, it took her 60-some years to confront that. How many people do you suppose live and die and never confront that? How many people do you suppose has lived in, have lived in your bloodline and mine that have never confronted the terrors, the traumas, the hates, the fears, the rages, the guilts, the survival dynamics of life? And how many does it just take someone looking at them cross-eyed for them to go into survival mode? and rage and terrorize others the way they were enraged at and terrorized. This is the whole power person dynamic. And then when you think about, you know, who do you know in your family system that's ever processed those things? I know I can't imagine anybody in my family system. I look back as a kid, parents, grandparents annoying him, i great-grandparents, uncles, aunts. There's nobody that could have had this conversation we're having right now. If if that's so for you and most people that I talk to, that's so. Like I might over the years of 50 years and I've worked with thousands of people, I can think of two people who actually they were the children of unity ministers who those unity ministers had really actually done some inner work. But other than that, I don't remember anybody that I've ever said, well, who in your family system do you suppose could have had this conversation about healing, had some knowledge of it and done some inner work? I've never met anybody. Nobody. And I, including myself. So if you're the early adopter, what you're taking on is a thousand generations of unresolved trauma, drama, and survival dynamics. Things that can shoot you into the uh, the level 7 emotional meter in a fraction of a second in order to survive. And this world that we have been gifted its called the Garden of Eden. Many people resent the garden because they pooped in the garden and don't know it's their own doing. <laughs> They're the ones that crapped it up. And it's time for us to clean it up. And to create a population that is functioning out of conscious, active, present love, where perception, this guide for our earthly life, the, the device that was given to us to take us through. You know, if I if I if I hired you in my office and said, Okay, we have a device for your to enlighten you in your job here in the office, it's this computer. If there are viruses in the computer, the computer is not going to guide you. You're going to have to run the virus software and clean it up. Well, if there is hostility or fear in you, whenever it's resonated into activity, and and you have no choice about it being resonated into activity, if it's there, it moves if something resonates it. You know, if I have a middle C tuning fork and I hit it on a desk and I put it in front of a second middle C tuning fork, that second middle C tuning fork doesn't have any choice about whether it's going to vibrate. It's an automatic law of energy. There's just an exchange of energy and the second tuning fork starts to vibrate. There's no choice about this. You know, when people say, oh, well, just don't feel that way or don't ever feel that again, well, that's just an insane thing to say to somebody or to say to themselves, oh, I'm never going to deal with that again. If it's there and something comes that resonates, it's going to move. And if it moves in someone you know and you go into upset and you think your upset is about what's moving in them, then you're lying to yourself. If you're in upset, if you're in some form of hostility or fear, your perception is darkened. Now theirs may be darkened too, but strictly speaking, in that state, their darkness is none of your damn business. The only business you have to resolve is your own darkness. Drawing from the religion that most people were devoutly, devoutly brainwashed into by the age of four is a major piece of work in one's life. That is withdrawing from your membership in the One World Universal Religion of blame. Because virtually everybody... And and I'll say that I you've heard it on the show, and I've done it hundreds of times. I'll say to somebody, well, if you're in some sort of fear or hostility, then you have a problem, and denial is speaking or thinking as though that problem inside of you is caused by someone else. And they'll say, oh, okay, I understand denial. And they'll go on and say, and then yesterday afternoon when Bill did this, boy, he made me so damn mad. Bill made you mad. Really? Bill came along and instilled instilled a program in your mind of mad. Really? No. The mad was there. Bill triggered it. But now that you're in denial, now that you've lied to me and told me that Bill is the cause of your mad, in order to build a construct called perception that Bill is responsible for your mad, literally to build a picture, you have to hide the truth of why you are mad, where that madness came from, and it might be a hundred generations ago. Or it might be what happened, as with Angie at the age of seven, bless her heart. So ultimately, to come out of denial is to come out of the one world universal religion of blame. And that means that the pattern of speech that you have been brought up in and totally steeped in and lived out all of your life is going to have to be dramatically changed. Elsewise, each vibration that is out of harmony with love, when activated by something in the world, will cause your mind to serve you up some form of perception that will be based in darkness. And if you just notice... How deep your darkness has been, and your recovery from that darkness comes from healing denial. So, Miss Jeannie, we're heading into page 24. We've been heading here for a couple of days. And so uh, before I get into page 24, uh, do we have anybody in the chat room with a hand up or anything happening? Uh in the chat room. Pardon me. Anything in the phone queue, or anybody with their hand up in the, uh, or a question in the chat room?
1: Nope, it's all quiet on both
3: fronts. All, all quiet on the western front. Okay. So we're going to start off Oops. and. Uh, Is that at a hand? Tw-
1: just go up.
3: Let's go for it.
1: Six one zero. Hi, Susan.
3: Hey. <laughs> Welcome, Thank you, lady.
1: Thank you. How are you
4: guys?
3: We're good. You're well, I can tell. We are rocking, yes. Right. Had a fun day in the garden mm. yesterday, and today it's too cold to go out there, so we're staying in. All right. And getting a grandbaby to play with in a couple hours.
4: Oh, nice. It is. Did you get I, that
3: uh, text I sent no, you yesterday? No, I
4: never got it. In fact, I wanted to tell you, I did not get that.
3: It just, I i don't know. I don't understand happens yeah I don't know. I sent it twice yeah. i know very strange hmm. okay. I'll email it to you great thank you I'll email it to you I and' I'll, I'll copy <coughs> the um i'll copy the uh phone number okay. that I'm texting it to uh to okay. confirm that it's correct. We will put it out over here on the uh on the show but hmm
4: well it ought to be it ought to be right
3: that's strange should be. So what's on your mind for today?
4: Well, I had a question about being a first adopter and so forth. Tim Bingham, my husband, has been recreating a relationship, or I should say creating a relationship with himself as a little boy, with his father. And one thing he said to me is his father was, the seventh son of seven boys and no girls. And the father of, you know, he got an awful lot of hubbub and attention, but he was not at all close to his father. So he didn't really know how to be close to a little boy in his family. He had three daughters, and then he had my husband. He had Tim. Right. I think he was kind of mean by that. In any case, my question is, he was telling me how he remembered how his father smelled, and he remembered a couple of wonderful early memories. And he is able to construct... This is like reparenting himself. And he's having some success with it. Awesome. I thought, I can't... I never was physically close enough to my mother except as an infant to have smelled her. And so I said, gee, I'm jealous, you know. I, and then I said, I don't have any desire at all to, to construct a very close physical relationship with my mother. And... You know, in one sense, I'm saying to myself, well, for God's sakes, you're doing well in life, and why bother? You Get over it, you know? But then I began to think, is it important? Do I have to do that? I have no desire to do that. I've, uh, to, I just don't want to go there at all, and I'm thinking, is this the resistor, or have I done enough in other ways that I don't need to do that? You know what I'm
3: saying? I, I'm just curious. Well, I, I got you. I don't think you need to do that at all. However, what you de- do need to do in order to get into a place where you're capable of the kind of fulfillment that is designed for human beings is you're going to have to honor that first commandment or second honor thy father and thy mother
0: Mhm.
3: That's going to have to happen. And well, the what reason ma- for that
4: Why do you think it is? Go ahead. It hasn't happened. Why why do you assume that I haven't done that?
3: Well, what you just told me is I don't want to be close to her and honor in in Aramaic my best understanding of the word honor would be to bring conscious, active, present love, my human expression, into behavior toward that parent. And when you say, I have no desire to be close, that would seem to indicate that there's still something to be processed. And my best understanding of that particular passage or idea is that, you know, we're, we're given a standard. We've been talking about the first law, which says you've got to have rachma, mm-hmm. holding a space of active, present love for the creator, for neighbor, in order to maintain mm-hmm. your human life. So that, mm-hmm. that applies to everybody in the world. You don't have to do any behavior toward them. That law doesn't mm-hmm. require behavior. It just says, if you want to heal yourself, you've got to hold rachma, whoever's in your space. But then... Mm-hmm. There's a special requirement. There's one group of people that there's a higher level requirement for, and that is parents. Mm-hmm. Why would there be a higher level requirement? Because parents generally tend to end up being our power persons.
0: All right.
3: And mm-hmm. so when I can be near to them
0: mm.
3: and... When I'm near to them, anything I haven't resolved with them in the way of a power person dynamic is going to start to move in me, and now what the law says there, the way it works, the way healing works in that situation is, I bring my human essence love into action and activity toward them and when I do that's going to pass through the power person dynamic in myself because in their presence that's going to be resonating in me and so when I take active present love into behavior toward them I pass that active present love over the part of me that still has unresolved power person dynamics and I get to heal
4: <laughs> okay. Hang on a second. I'll, I'm going to mute myself for one teeny second because I
3: have to cough. Go for it. Go ahead. Get that cough out.
4: I'm back. Um, okay. Okay. My mother lived with us for the last three years of her life. And as right. an adult, me, me being adult, I felt safe with her. And I could be her mother. And I could right. actually take care of Care of her in lots of ways that I had wished to have have had her done to me. So
3: they'd be good. they be I good worksheets I, to do.
4: So how all so the ways okay. you wish
3: she had done that for you, they would be good worksheets mm-hmm. to do.
4: <laughs> I don't wish it, Michael. I don't wish it. No. Maybe that. You don't
3: wish work. what? Wait, whoa, wait, a minute. You don't <laughs> wish what?
4: Get, end up with that kind of close relationship with her
3: but notice that you just said quote I wish I was able to take care of her in ways I wish she'd been able to take care of me
4: that's the second time you've caught me up on something I said okay and, not,
3: and notice that, that your mind can instantly hide that and say no I have no yeah. desire for that okay. and that's what carbon based memory does Mm-hmm. With its unresolved dynamics.
4: Well, there's. Okay. All right. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I'd suggest a bet?
3: mind shifter to work on.
4: All right. I've got my junk out already because I know you might have a way of pulling that <laughs> sort of thing on it Okay. <laughs> Go ahead.
0: It is sweet, mm-hmm.
3: pleasant. Mm-hmm. See where you're going with it. Okay, keep going. It is sweet, pleasant, and desirable. It is it is sweet, mm-hmm. pleasant, and desirable mm-hmm. for me to be able to embrace my mother fully Mm. in love and receive her embrace in return. Mm. Are you breathing?
4: No, I'm not breathing and I want to fight the hell out of this.
3: (laughs) Okay, so that's that's the first thing you put on the right-hand side. So that's what's Mm -hmm. going to need to resonate and be cleared out of carbon-based memory.
4: Yeah, and, I can't and even imagine suspect,
3: wanting it. Say again?
4: Can't even imagine wanting it.
3: Okay, so that'd be the first thing you put on the right side. Okay. And, and with as deep an issue as this is, how many generations of mothers and daughters do you suppose this one's gone on with? And when I Remember you describing how, because of seemingly external circumstances, you were pretty much separated from your own daughter. It would seem like another form of the same issue in expression.
4: And for for some reason, that has turned around.
3: You've been doing your work. Of course it's turned around.
4: Well, she did too, though. She came back. She yes. came back. It's, and, and when maybe, you are
3: healed, you are never healed alone.
4: Maybe that's true, but she and I, I remember playing with dolls, and I played with dolls, acting toward the dolls the way I wanted to have my mother act toward me. And it right. was they were very sweet relationships. And so by the time I had my daughter, my mother used to say, wow, you're so... You're so physical You're with her. You're so close to her. And I'd say, yeah, I've been, I wanted to do that with her. And she said, I never could do that. I didn't say, yeah, I know. I'd say, oh, yeah, well, don't worry about it. I, I couldn't go there even to talk to her about it. It bothered her right. at the end of her life. But so... My daughter, she did go away and there's a long, there's a lot of stuff there, I'm sure. But anyway, but my model was my best girlfriend when I was little. She had a very affectionate mother. And I'd go over there and just sit and watch how the mother would comb her hair and kiss her, put her hands on her face. Oh my God, it was...
3: I thought,
4: boy, that's the way it ought to be done. I knew right, it.
0: Right,
3: right. From both sides of the equation. So so okay. here would be my offering. Okay. Here would be my offering. All
0: right. What
3: I hear you saying is, it was pretty tough with your mom. A
0: yeah. lot of
3: separation. And you had the blessing of somebody modeling what a mother or daughter looked like. Yeah, and you were able to follow that modeling because mm-hmm. you'd seen it and it was something you'd wanted so deeply. But now is where you get to work through the remnants of what happened between you and your mother that you were able mm-hmm. to override. You were able to do something different. You developed the capacity mm-hmm. because someone did model it for you, but modeled it without you fully resolving the issues within you. No, sure. And as you take that mind shifter and and work through whatever comes up, I'd I'd suggest that's a a four hour mind shifter to just sit oh, quietly and write and okay. let it all dump out on the page, right down to your toes. Mhm. Yeah, I can
4: I can see that.
3: And breathe. Yeah. And then when you can imagine. Embracing out of the truth of your being, your mother, right where she is and extending that love into behavior toward her, then you'll know you fully healed that issue in you. And you will change mother-daughter dynamics for your whole bloodline. The bloodline that went before you, where that all started, and I could just about guarantee it didn't start with you and your mom, Mm -hmm. And the bloodline of what comes after you, you change the dynamic.
4: You know, I have a question. I have a couple of pictures of my mother with her mother. She was an only child. I think her mother was a little older by the time she was born. And they are very close physically. Uh, We'll photograph with her mother sitting down and she's tall enough to have her head rest on her shoulder standing up next to her. And so there's this sweet picture. That doesn't mean that's the way it really was. But the only two pictures I can think of are showing something quite different than my mother dared to do with us. My mother was so scared of touch of any kind
3: for some reason. Did she ever say anything that intimated there was perhaps physical abuse, either by words acknowledging or by actions that went under stress? Is that what she turned to, which would be the power person dynamic?
4: No. Um, she, she was close to her mother, and we knew that grandmother very well. And my grandfather was, he was the one that was the 13th child who was put in an orphanage when
0: um, mm. he
4: was five, because... His mother couldn't feed him, and he, he never knew her, really, except as a much older man, the mother turned up for, <clears throat> for help because the mother was pretty destitute. It's a very hmm. sad story, but uh, I only know that my grandfather was, could be crude. He only got an education up to the eighth grade. And most of his cohorts were other orphans. And he, he could be harsh verbally, uh, judgmental, very, very black and white thinker, prejudiced, goodness. Um, but I don't think there was anything physical. But, you know, I, you don't know. I mean, what you're saying is possibly true. And maybe I don't need to know. Uh, this mind shifter puts it all in my lap, right up in the present. Really, I mean, my yeah. my early childhood doesn't. And <laughs> I was keep there thinking, again, can I get away with not doing anything about it? <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't even ask this question except
0: him being a. Absolutely, you can. Saying, Absolutely you can.
3: Absolutely, you can. Absolutely, you can. There's no requirement that to do it. Okay. Except that. That energy is what sooner or later will be your downfall if you don't resolve it if you recognize it's in you
4: how so? I'm eighty years old. How many years left do
3: I have to do a downfall? You've got eternity <laughs>
4: oh, you've got an I think we get forever. to
3: kill I think home. we get to I think we get to kill as many bodies as we need to, and then we get to do it again until we go hmm. Maybe it's time for me to just move through all of this. Okay. But one of the ways to tell whether that was a dynamic, a likely dynamic between your mother and her mother, and/or that it was a generational dynamic that maybe didn't happen between your mother and her grand her mother, uh, but Mm -hmm. was passed and came before, was when under stress did she reach for a way to physically punish?
4: Oh, yeah, that's the thing.
3: So she did. So that was part of my question of you. If you go back and listen to the show, that was part of my question of you a moment ago where you answered no, none of that occurred. Oh, you said abuse.
4: Me. there any abuse? Yeah, yeah. I pictured sexual abuse. I didn't think of that kind of abuse.
3: Hmm. Okay, so that's a clue. Then yeah. I'd be starting to look. I'd be I'd make a note. That I'd put that down on the right hand side of this mind shifter, the right hand side of the page mm-hmm. so that your mind automatically went to sexual abuse, and let that file mm-hmm. open and see what you find. And again, that might be a generational dynamic. And and I understand mm-hmm. why. Wait a minute. I want to stay away from this all together. but what, what I can't be the space of love for diminishes me. If there's, especially if there's something in me that I can't allow to open and embrace from a space of love, that diminishes me. And working through it is what expands me. If you go to the Aramaic, where the kingdom of heaven is thought of someplace off in the sky. It can also be properly translated as the kingdom of expansion, the community of love, the kingdom of expansion. And when there's something in me that I have to shut down, close down, hold in abeyance, hide from myself, I'm diminished by that, and I can come into full expression when I'm able to hold that, embrace that, and process through that. And the thing to get is it's safe to go wherever it takes you. <clears throat> and I see this congestion in your lungs loosening and letting go. And Yeah, I went to the doctor. Whatever's that.
4: And, yeah, well, it's true. She listens and she said, lungs are clear. I don't need to order a... Um, an x-ray, but she said, you are pulling some a lots of stuff up, and you have this post-nasal drip. And she she's said uh, she would get me a cough syrup, and I said, do you have a, a homeopathic equivalent somewhere? And she said, oh, I'm so glad you asked. This is a young uh, nurse practitioner. She said, I have a three-year-old daughter, and you know I've taken meds, but I don't want to give them to her. So what do I do? Awesome. She said I take a little bit of honey with turmeric and ginger powder in it, a couple of times yes. a day. So I said, oh, thank you. And do I still have to? She said I'll put in the prescriptions for the other stuff if you want to get it, but you don't have to pick it up. And I said, great. So I think she feels she has to cover some medical bases, but I don't right. have
3: to comply. Right. Of course. better you let the congestion keep opening, and especially if your lungs are doing well, what that would at least intimate is that your structure is loosening and letting go of things, and that means that it would be collecting, the the lymphatic system would be collecting mucus breaking up from anywhere in the form and needing to be cleared out. And if your lungs are clear, Mm -hmm. that to me would be an indicator that's what's happening. You're in an extended healing crisis, which is a wonderful mm-hmm. place to be, and you certainly don't need one of those things that's going to slap that energy back down and lock it back in tissue. So it's wonderful that she's given you a, a way to support the opening yeah. and the release of it. If you add a little bit of cayenne pepper, that will also help to break that congestion up and move it out of your structure.
4: Okay. I've been doing that with lemon juice in the morning, but I see it's time to stop. This is great, Michael. You always go right for the jugular, and I want to bat you away and say, no, I'm not doing that.
0: Okay.
3: <laughs> what fun it is to heal, isn't it? It's just awesome.
4: <laughs> well, it's, it's an amazing just thought awesome. that I... Re- yeah. Well, thank you so much. That was very fruitful. I'm taking deep breaths as I look at this darn mind shifter.
3: Joining you in deep breaths and notice how when you say darn mind shifter, notice what tightens in you. And notice that's where your okay. cough is. Just observe I like your body. It,
0: that's
4: weird. Oh, that's so no, weird. No, it's not I weird. Made the face, I made the face my mom always made when she was hitting us. The very same
3: face. Mm. Yeah. <laughs>
0: that's
3: part of, okay. process, yep. part of the healing process, dear heart. Part of the healing process. Remember the symptoms of healing. So breathing with you and holding the space. That's awesome.
4: Thank you. Thanks Generations yet energy.
3: unborn will thank you.
4: Holding you in a blessing.
3: Mm-hmm. All right. Thanks, everybody, for joining us.
4: Sure.
0: Create
3: the best sure. year yet of your eternal life. It's an awesome gift to give the world blessings. Bye-bye.